everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Becky Feldman from the Second Look Network. She's uh, the director of that new project. I was really excited to see that uh, the sentencing project was putting this together first because um, I really respect the work of the sentencing project. And then second, because there's a huge need um, out there. I know out here in California, um, I was just mentioning it before we got on the air um, that there's just people that get caught up in the system and there are all these changing laws and there are unscrupulous attorneys that are just charging an arm and a leg for very simple things that uh, people shouldn't have to mortgage their houses for. And I've just seen way too many situations where people trying to get their family members out and are getting taken advantage. So welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So um, let's start out with uh, what is the Second Look Network and what is it that uh, you're hoping to do with this? Yeah, so the Second Look Network was just launched um, in March. So um, and we are housed at the Sentencing Project and it's a grant funded project where the goal is to get together all of the litigators and the litigation support specialists who are doing second look representation across the U.S. together. Um, So we want to build a coalition of folks who are doing this exciting work to support them, to provide training, resources, connections, communication support, um, to help elevate their legal practice. Um, And just to talk about second, the concept of second look for a moment, um, it's a relatively new legal term that's out there, which generally means uh, a statutory process that allows judges to reconsider a sentence after serving a period of time. And so there are not a lot of these laws on the books. Um, I know that 25 states have introduced legislation this past year uh, about Uh, creating second look mechanisms or more robust parole mechanisms. And so right now we only have a handful of states that have what I would consider actual second look statutes on the books where people can go back into court and demonstrate their rehabilitation, what they've done the past 10, 20 years um, and demonstrate that they're no longer a danger to the public um, if they ever were. And, um, 
and the judge or parole board can reconsider their sentence. Perfect. Um, and and so, for instance, in California, uh, you know, we have uh, a variety of different laws that have come onto the books. Um, one of the more prolific ones is the prosecutor initiated process, uh, whereby the prosecutor can actually go back and say, hey, you know, this person's already spent 30 years in prison and they've uh, gotten their college degree and they're not a threat to society anymore. So let's let's no longer spend money to incarcerate them. Mm -hmm. uh, but it sounds like it's not uh, caught on across the country yet. Oh, I think um, there's only five states that have the prosecutor initiated uh, resentencing laws in place. I, I've i been reading up on the ver how it's going in these various states, and I think California is the one taking it most seriously when the governor um, provides a large amount of funding to do pilot projects around this concept of prosecutors looking back at these sentences and deciding, you know, whether they could support a release or a reduced sentence in cases. I think it's a very important mechanism that um, I hope other states spread it <laughs> and enact it in, in their localities. Um, but you know, right now I think California is the one uh, state who is really dedicating resources to this concept that prosecutors themselves should look back at these sentences. Yeah, we even have you know, kind of uh, traditional law and order type prosecutors that have kind of bought into the system that they're like, you know what, we don't need to keep these people in prison indefinitely well past the point at which they're a threat to society. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think states are looking at their prison populations and and their geriatric prison populations and thinking, okay, well, what can we do about this? Um, and so uh, I'm glad to hear that um, the more conservative prosecutors, the law and order folks are, are con seriously considering this. And I think that they should. Um, I don't think it was or is a classic role of the prosecutor to go back after 20 years and, you know, make the decisions that traditionally are with a parole board. But I think as we've all learned, um, and, and no disrespect to people on the parole boards, I think they're doing um, really hard jobs, but it's just inadequate. Um, the pr prisons are, are full. Um, the parole processes are usually very discretionary. Um, and so we need other opportunities for folks who are incarcerated to demonstrate their rehabilitation, whether it's to a prosecutor's office or to a judge or to a parole board. And in fairness to parole boards, even though, you know, I have my share of criticisms of them, in some of these cases, uh, these folks aren't even eligible for parole for quite a few years. And so this this can actually speed up their eligibility or it can get them out. Um, so there's a lot of things that they can do now. Yeah, and there are 16 states that don't even have parole. So... <laughs> Um, so, so what's, what are the other options for second chances and redemption? Um, so that's where these, these newer laws and efforts can, can fill that need. 
And I did want to uh, do a little background here. Um, can you talk a bit about the work of the sentencing project? We've had some of your colleagues on actually in recent weeks, but I'm really familiar with your work, but a lot of people aren't. Yeah, so the Sentencing Project has been around for several decades now, and it is a research and advocacy nonprofit focusing on mass incarceration, racial disparities, and, vo and voting rights. Um, so I've only been with the Sentencing Project for three months now. I was brought on specifically for this Second Look project. Um, but yeah, they're amazing. They're researchers and uh, advocates in the legislatures um, and just being a resource for people about statistics and what's really going on in terms of incarceration. Um, and yeah. can you share a little bit about your background and how you got to this place? Yeah, well, it's been a long road. <laughs> so I, I'm a Maryland attorney. I have been... Um, and it's specifically a post-conviction attorney. So I started um, my first job out of law school, um, other than being a judicial law clerk for a few years, was at the Public Defender's Post-Conviction Division in Maryland. And um, so for about 15 years, um, I had various roles there, but my focus was on post-conviction, modification of sentence, and parole of people who are incarcerated. And even more specifically, my focus was on the geriatric inmate population. So that is where I've spent the majority of my career. Um, and then the last two years, I was hired at the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office to create their new sentencing review unit. Um, which, which is very similar to a prosecutor-initiated resentencing concept, although we don't have that law in Maryland, at least not yet. And so I reviewed cases of folks who had been incarcerated for at least 20 years if they were a juvenile at the time of the crime, or 25 years if they were now a geriatric um, incarcerated person, so that was 60 years or older, and just reviewed their files, reviewed the cases, reached out to the victims. Um, just a lot of work, a lot of background work, and made a recommendation to the state's attorney whether we could support a reduced sentence or not. And so I did that work for two years before coming to the sentencing project. So you mentioned geriatrics, and you know, one of the most fascinating things, and I I give a lot of credit to the sentencing project for kind of teasing out the stat is how low a risk it is uh, for a lot of these older people that have been incarcerated. Basically, they've aged out of crime. And, and so, you know, we, we've set up this system that doesn't make any sense. Um, we, we incarcerate people well past the point where they're actually a threat to society. And then um, we incarcerate them to the point where it costs a lot of money because as you age, unfortunately, your medical bills go up. And so the cost of healthcare goes up, the risk to society goes up, and we're keeping these people behind bars. And it makes no public safety sense at all. 
I totally agree. And I think focusing on the geriatric prison population can be a little bit easier for the public to get on board with because we're talking about folks who are usually 60 years or over. Um, and as you can see from recidivism rates and data compiled over decades, the recidivism rates for people who are 40 or over drop significantly, 50 and over significant. And then at the age of 60, it's almost zero. And so what are we doing with the 60 year olds? Um, we have created a system um, that prisons are becoming nursing homes. They're becoming hospices. They are transporting people to and from dialysis appointments to surgeries and, um, I'm not sure they they signed up for all of that. That's a lot of work to take care of an aging person. And so let's spend our money in better. What's that? I said they don't do a good job of it either. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I mean, um, you have to outsource the medical care um, and make a lot of decisions about what's necessary treatment and not necessary treatment because of money. So. Um, so yeah, I had a number of clients over the years where our reentry plan was sending them into a nursing home um, who would be much better equipped to, to provide care. So um, we have wings in Maryland of blind inmates. We have wings of deaf inmates. We have wings of people in wheelchairs. And so think of all those, all those people that are just sitting there. Um, and we can provide them with much better resources on the outside and use that money toward public safety programs that actually work. And again, these are people for the most part that are not any kind of threat to society anymore. Yes, I, I totally agree. Um, in Maryland, we had um, a court decision that came out in 2012, which uh, allowed many inmates um, the right to a new trial. It was called the Unger case. And over the years, um, we managed to secure the release of 200 individuals who were incarcerated for either rape or murder, who served at least 30 years in prison. The most was 55. And we uh, provided each of them with social workers, re-entry plans, support networks, and of the 200, um, seven went back to prison for technical violations or committing a new crime. Um, so the recidivism rate is less than 4% for that population. And we talk about this case all the time because it's an example of, um, you know, with 200 people um, convicted of the worst crimes uh, can, even after that amount of time, can come back and be successful. And I've seen cases, you know, where, where people committed horrible crimes when they were very young, you know, teenagers. And, you know, after 20 years or so, they're, they're not in the same place that they were at one point in time. Exactly. And, and the juveniles, um, I think that's a, another group of people, a population that we need to sp spend uh, spend some could uh, really consider them more deeply um, because of their age at the time of the crime and the fact that they 
have changed. They can change. Um, they are capable of change. So, um, yeah, it's much different than, say, a 30-year-old committing a terrible crime. Right. Um, yeah, the capacity for change, I think, is just incredible. Do we have a way to kind of safeguard who the people are that, um, you know, really aren't a risk to release versus those who, yeah, they've been in for a long time, but they just continue to be a threat? Yeah, I, I haven't seen that many people that fall in the latter category <laughs> that you said. Um, I've been representing people convicted of rape or murder, you know, for the majority of my, my career. And I have yet to meet that person where I thought, ooh, I hope he doesn't get out. <laughs> like, we should all, like, be worried. I have yet to meet that person. So, you know, um, I'm sure that th there are people out there like that. Um, but I think that is the rare, rare exception, not the rule. Which I think is an important point because I think people kind of pigeonhole uh, people that commit horrible crimes and assume they're always going to be a threat. Um, and maybe you look at a Charles Manson as kind of, you know, that example, <laughs> like, oh, okay, yeah, no, <laughs> that guy I don't want out. Uh, but, exactly. But that's really, really rare, right? That's really rare. And the parole board knows the Charles Mansons, right? <laughs> they're like, there, there, there might be one in every state, you know, um, but that's not the thousands and thousands and thousands of people in prison, um, the two million people in prison, actually. Right. So, um, and usually, like I said, we know who they are, and even the people around them know who they are. They're like that guy. That guy's crazy. <laughs> so, um, so they're not hard to to identify and to to be concerned about. So, um, you know, going back to the program you guys are putting together, how is this gonna be created and who is going to be able to join at least on, on the uh, attorney side? Yes, so it is open to attorneys and what I call litigation support specialists. So people who are part of your defense team, like you may have your social workers, your paralegals, your re-entry specialists. Um, so anyone in that category, and you have to be a member of a host organization, we call it. So you're a public defender, you work for a nonprofit, you work for a university clinic, um, or you work for a law firm that does pro bono work. So we're looking for folks who do this work for free um, or pro bono. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the, that's the main criteria. And so there's a quick application process. It's all online. And if you're approved, um, we are going to bring everybody onto a single platform called HiveBright, where that is where we will share stories, news articles, reports, we'll offer training. Um, that is the space where we will live and communicate and collaborate. So that that's really important um, because I think there are a lot of attorneys out there that would like to do this that don't have the expertise. So uh, having the support and the training is really important because, you know, except in the rackets, there's no money in this. Right. Yeah. And we're hoping to even inspire new um, inspire attorneys to this work because it is so needed. 
Um, and, you know, people need very good representation and we want to show them like, here are some ideas to do that. Here's what you, what a mitigation uh, presentation should look like. Here's the experts you should hire. Um, if you are capable of doing that. Um, and here's the law about recidivism and here's the, the stats about, uh, juvenile brain development, you know, so providing all of those resources and support is important to elevate the practice and, and to inspire others to come to this work. Um, and also we're hoping to do some creative litigation. You know, there's states that don't have these second look laws that don't have parole. So what, what are we going to do there? Um, I think there are opportunities um, for litigation um, to create those opportunities. So that's other thing. another thing we'll be talking about on the network. Are you guys looking possibly to be on the lobbying side to try to support legislation for second look laws and things like that? So um, this, the sentencing project does that work already. Um, we, we support a lot of state efforts who are looking to create second look opportunities. Um, this network is more litigation focused, however, um, but that doesn't mean we can't connect them with legislative policy efforts going on in their communities or their state. And we are partnered with FAM, who is also doing the, the legislative advocacy piece um, for Second Look. And so we'll, we'll, connect, we'll connect the dots, we'll connect the folks um, for that work. But this network is not for people looking to do legislative advocacy per se, although it is often a part of your legal advocacy. So, um... You know, when I saw the announcement from the sentencing project about this, I shot, you know, some screenshots to some of the incarcerated folks I know that have been looking for help. Um, and they're like, well, how do we get uh, access to this? <laughs> um, so I don't know, is that set up yet? Have you guys figured that out? How that's going that to work? That is not set up yet. And I say yet because I hope to be able to do that in the future. Um, we are already getting all kinds of inquiries from moms and grandmas saying, you know, my son's been in prison for 20 years, 30 years. How can he get into this program? And this isn't a program of direct representation, but I do hope to be able to expand it so that we can provide referrals for folks who contact us and I can say, you know, I know a group, I know an attorney, I know a clinic that can help you or can direct you. Um, so I hope to get to that place um, in the near future. Yeah, and that's a big need because, you know, I, I know you mentioned to me um, that, you know, they should contact their public defender's office and, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, I, and I'm sure it's the same way there, kind of hit and miss like there there are public defenders offices that have their own resentencing groups and all sorts of projects and and funding and I know in California there's even some grant funding that's gone uh for for representation but there are other public defenders offices that just aren't set up and so uh people are SOL uh, yes and, yes you know, at this point uh, I agree and um you know, the public defender's offices look different in every county and every state. And in Maryland, we were lucky. We had a statewide public defender system 
and we had a post-conviction division. Um, most other places don't have that, and it's really unfortunate. So um, I think I was talking to a public defender, I think it was Tennessee, who said, even if we tried to do a resentencing, like a second look type resentencing, the judge wouldn't allow us because it's not in our statute. So <laughs> there are some hurdles there and um, legal and otherwise and, and financial and resource hurdles. Um, so you're right. Um, there are some public defender's offices, probably many who just cannot take on this work. But the fact that there are hurdles is why you guys needed to create the program. So it's kind yes. of interesting catch 22, right? Yes. So that means, okay, well, then we'll start engaging with clinics. We'll start engaging with pro bono attorneys, um, nonprofits, and we'll figure out ways to get representation, good representation um, in the various places. So what are your needs at this point? Well, we just we just launched the network um, in in March, and um, so we're bringing on people to the platform. Hopefully, this week and next week. Um, I would say our needs are if if there's anyone listening to this who provides training um, in a special uh, specialized area of the law re regarding second look mitigation, um, creative lawyering. Um, I'm looking to bring on folks to just provide training to our network. Um, so that's probably our most immediate need. Um, and if you haven't heard about the Second Look Network and you qualify, please apply. I want to bring on as many people as possible who do this work so that we can just, you know, create a coalition of folks um, who are connected and have the most up-to-date resources and information. I think this is kind of the the part, you know, kind of stepping back, just looking how far we've come in maybe the last 15 years. I mean, the idea of a second look network uh, where, you know, you can actually put resources in to helping get people out of prison that really shouldn't be there, aren't a threat, as we've talked about. Um, and you know, I kind of talk about this as kind of the floor of the criminal justice movement because, you know, we're not, we're, we're not talking about doing radical things. It's just, <laughs> hey, this guy doesn't need to be in prison any longer. I know. And, and this is a recent thing. You're right. It is kind of surprising. It took so long to get here. Um, a couple years ago, you could say second look and nobody would know what you're talking about. And now people are like, oh, you mean a resentencing, you mean uh, more parole opportunities. And so, um, and like I said earlier, 26 states introducing legislation to create more opportunities. Um, so I think this is the new wave of criminal reform um, to address what we have now come to know as this, this blight, this mass incarceration blight we, we have to deal with. Um, and, and yeah, so this is an exciting time to be involved in this work. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier, you know, it just seems like this is something that even more conservative prosecutors and more traditional 
prosecutors are like, yeah, I can get behind this. I mean, come on, the 70 year old has been in prison for 30 years. I don't need to spend more money to keep him in prison. Right. And there's so many of those examples, <laughs> I'm sure, in every state of, of the 70 year old. And um, yeah, I, I I hope, you know, that that we can get more people on board um, because we're talking about violent crimes here. You know, if you're 70 years old and you've been in for a while, it's probably for a violent crime. And um, so I, I'm glad to hear that people are open to it. And, you know, let's create a space for redemption. You know, that space has not been created before. It's you're going away for life. You're going away for this amount of years. We're never going to see you again. And now it's like, okay, we're going to see you again. <laughs> we're going to see you again in court um, or, you know, at, the, at a parole hearing. Um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, that's how I like to talk about it is because um, I know this is a difficult, difficult um, process for victims to go through as well. So, you know, how can we provide opportunities for restorative justice, for healing, and for redemption? And so I I think we just need to think about these resentencing opportunities in that framework. So as we close, do you have any like uplifting stories from your experiences in uh, Maryland that you could share quickly? I, well, I have so many, I have so many. So um, I think I'll just say the most recent one um, was in Maryland, we passed the Juvenile Restoration Act, which allows people who were convicted of crimes as juveniles to be resentenced, have a resentencing hearing after 20 years. Um, and so that's happening now in the state of Maryland. And one person in particular, although there's a lot of great stories coming out of this, um, was convicted at the age of 15, um, killed two people. Um, it was a drug situation. And he came out after, I think it was about 35 years, and he hit the ground running. He's already in the schools talking to students so that they don't follow his path. He is testifying in our state capitol on criminal justice reform issues. Um, he's I see him everywhere, and um, he... He feels that it is his job, this is how he will serve his victims, is to be a force of good and change. And he wants to make it make Baltimore safer by telling his story. So that that's my favorite, that's my latest favorite story, but there, there are so many just like that. Where can people get more information about the Second Look Network? Google the Sentencing Project, and it's right on our um, landing page that we just launched the Second Look Network. So you just click on that and we have all kinds of information right there. Great. Well, it's been great talking with you. I'm really excited to see how this develops. I know a lot of people are waiting to uh, to get in on this on, on the incarcerated person side. Uh, so thanks for joining us today. Thank you. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. 
You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.